You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. All right, because of my own tomfooleriness and not being on top of stuff, I, I couldn't find the, the other microphone this morning, but we'll use this one today. It'll be fine, and uh, you can hear me, and, and we can still get it recorded. I don't know what I did with it. or I blame Dave. It's your fault, Dave. Shame on you, Dave. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, we'll, we'll figure it out. Maybe we'll have it for next week. Who knows? They sell them every day. You just got to buy them from, uh, what, Amazon, I guess. So I, I hope that I can get clearly across this morning what we want to talk about. One thing I wanted to tell you about Pastor uh, Chibuya, I forgot to tell you, Dave, or Jed, is um, the reason he went out there, This was he said it was a two-hour ride, but he said mostly because the, the roads are just terrible there. The only paved roads right there in the city of Lusaka. And uh, Dave, some of those people in the picture were the ones that we baptized when we were there. Now, did you recognize a guy from there? Did you recognize? Uh, no, it's been a while. And uh, we won't make any jokes about that. But it's just, they, I didn't really recognize them, but some of those were the ones that we had baptized. And they asked that he would come out there and teach them how to evangelize like Brother Andrew. And I was thinking Brother Andrew like the Bible guy that took the Bibles into Europe and stuff. They're talking about Andrew of the Bible, just to be able to be a sound witness for the gospel. So they asked him to come out there, and that little church there, and then they invited some other people from those outer villages for him to evangelize them, but also for him to teach them how to evangelize others. And so I thought that was, uh, you know, that's more than a lot of us are doing. And it takes everything that they have uh, to, I mean, he has a car, but he never has money for fuel or tires or anything else. So, so he's in the money for some fuel. He goes out there. He has to get some permission and some different uh, pieces of paper. You know, we don't think about that to be able to travel from here to say it's not that far. I would say it's from here to Knoxville maybe. But to do that, you have to have different papers to pass through assorted places and be able to pass police and things like that and then have enough fuel to get there and back. So uh, anyway, so he said it was a productive trip and being able to help them to learn to preach the gospel to other people. How many people do you know uh, that, you're, that are Christians that one of their greatest concerns is being able to share the gospel with someone else? Think about that. I mean, that is so important to them. They know, I mean, they don't have anything else. But if they got the gospel, they got something great. So their, their desire is to be able to share the gospel with someone else. So anyway, we, last week we began to look at the people called out of Egypt. Keep Chibui in your prayers. That's all I can tell you. Keep him in his prayer. He's working hard. So is Pastor Elias. So is Joel. Uh, so we began to look at the people that were called out of Egypt, the mixed multitude. And we saw that they were not the Jews necessarily, and we're going to see that today, how that begins to work, how, we, how, how God got the mixed multitude's attention. And I pointed out that we, in this case, are the mixed multitude in a sense. We're not Jewish by blood, but we are grafted in. We should see ourselves as very blessed by God to be grafted in the called according to his purpose. So I was reading in... Uh, Isaiah this morning from Isaiah 50 to 66. If you want to do a good Bible study, we might go there next. I'm, I'm kind of thinking we might work on that. But you will see in Isaiah how much from Isaiah 50 to Isaiah 66, how much of that is spoken to the Gentiles. He comes to the Jew, Christ does. But he comes also for all nations, and he makes a way for all nations, particularly to the Gentiles, which would be us. He makes a way for us to see him and to recognize his blessing for us. And over and over, he in, in, that, in those last 16 chapters or so of Isaiah, actually from the 40s on, the New Testament part of Isaiah, um, you see 
you see this message to the nations that God is sending. And one of the words was, I'm going to, we need an intercessor. That was one of the words. We need an intercessor. We can't reach you, God. How are we going to reach you without an intercessor? Isaiah sees that. And so he comes as an intercessor between God and man so that he can reach us. So uh, the called according to his purpose, you are a conduit through which God's personality and his power are displayed. You are the intercessor for those that are not saved. You are the missionary. You are the messenger. An angel, the name angel, that's what it means, is messenger. You're the messenger. You're the Moses. You're the messenger. Moses was a messenger. You're the intercessor. Moses was an intercessor. He went between the fallen people and God. He was the one that spoke on their behalf. They needed a go-between. We're the go-between before a person accepts Christ. If they're a lost person, then they need you to tell them the gospel so that they can find God. I know that God can reach people. He reaches people all different ways. He reaches people through, uh, you know, uh, visions and dreams and stuff in the Arabic world, in the Chinese world. You hear of people receiving Christ that way. But in general, where God has presented himself, where people know the gospel, in general, the primary way that God uses to reach men with the gospel is through intercessors, through people that go and stand between God and, and sinners and tell them the word of the gospel. So we shouldn't grow tired of the work. We should allow ourselves to be used up. We talked about this last week, like Christ was. He allowed men to treat him any way they wanted. Um, if you want to look at some good ones, you can look at The Way of the Master, uh, Ray Comfort, uh, Living Waters, the ones I get those tracks from over there. Watch some of his videos on YouTube. Very interesting. If people mock him, he just keeps on going. If people make fun of him, but he has a lot of very good answers and very good solutions for people that have questions about who God is. He's worked hard on being a good messenger, and we should do the same. So we see this example in Christ so much greater than us that he allowed men to use him up and abuse him and mock him and, and even his own brothers uh, you know, demean him and stuff until after his death, and then they come to that saving knowledge of him. And we struggle to give ourselves in this way. We talked about that last week. We struggle to give ourselves up like that because we, we, we like us. I like me. I don't like other people to be mad at me. I don't like other people to be critical of me. We, we like ourselves. We say we don't. We say we're so humble and stuff. But the reality is we like ourselves. And we, we already, all of us struggle with image and self, whatever you want to call it. But, but, but in that, God made us that way to maintain our humility. Remember Paul with the thorn in the flesh? Part of that was so his head didn't get so big. He was very dynamic and very productive as an evangelist. Well, I mean, he's doing miracles. He's raising people from the dead and healing the sick and things. And if, if he's not really careful, he gets to thinking it's him. So God puts that self-image issue within us, I believe, to maintain, to help us maintain our humility. But at the same time, he has an expectation of us to preach the gospel to all the nations. So don't worry about letting people use you up. Let them use you up. Uh, but know that in the end, there's a restitution. Last week was the mixed multitude. Today, we're going to see the restitution. I want you to remember that word, restitution. So long before the Jews ever went to, uh, uh, so anyway, I got ahead of myself already. But the, the Jews end up in Egypt, and right away, um, they, they begin to develop as a nation within Egypt. And, um, and we see that the Egyptians, seeing their growth in multitudes, like, man, we got to get a handle on this. And they begin to get the Jews underneath this kind of slavery mindset. But God is not going to allow his people to be abused that way without restoring them to what they're due. I'm not talking about, and, if, and you can look at this 
I want you to see this this way, but the Jews were due something. I mean, we're due judgment, of course, because we're sinners. We're due discipline because we sin. We, we're due a number of things, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what we're due as far as restitution, as far as being restored fully to the, the things that God has for us, for the people that he loves. Some of it we won't see till eternity. But even in this time, there's a certain restitution that we're due, and I'll show that to you. Genesis 15, 14, if you want to go there or not. But long before the Jews ever went to Egypt, they were promised through Abram a great financial windfall. At the end of the time that they would be in Egypt, they were going to get this financial windfall. They're going to, a windfall is a big lump of cash that you get all in one sum. You're not really, you're not really prepared for it. Just, you know, an uncle dies and leaves you a million dollars. We're all hoping for that uncle. I had two uncles died. They left $5 million to uh, University of Kansas and $2 million to Kansas State and another million to Emporia State. And they gave me $5 one time and told me I could earn my own money. <laughs> but uh, one of my cousins got a pretty good lick out of it, but I, I got 5 bucks. That was not exactly a windfall. Kansas got the windfall. Dale got the windless, whatever. I got whatever was the opposite of that. But, um, but when you receive something like that, then you have this, this moment of euphoria. You know, you receive this great blessing of something like that. We all hope for the rich uncle, right? We, we, we receive this rich blessing like that, and then you're like, man, what should I do with all this cash? I got all this thing. You know, they gave me a house. We know of a girl whose um, father tragically passed away, but I don't think she realized how wealthy he was, and he left her enough money that she could buy her own house. She's about 20 years old. She could buy her own house, and she has a trust fund to live on from here on out. Was not expecting that at all. Um, it's tragic that her pa father passed away, but she's set for life, truly, if she makes any kind of wise decision at all, she's set. So when we receive a windfall like this, what are we going to do with it? So the Jews had heard through the fathers, through the patriarchs, that this windfall was coming, but they had yet to see it. And they were frustrated about that. And especially once they're enslaved, they were like, there is just no way we're ever receiving that. And actually, the Jews receive this windfall two different times. They actually receive it again when they go back with Nehemiah um, uh, to rebuild the walls around, uh, around Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. They receive a windfall there. The king of Babylon and in, of Persia there and of the Medes, he ends up giving them a bunch of the wealth that had been taken from the city years before. So God blesses his people this way. Um, Genesis 15, 14, let me read that to you. It says, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. They went in with nothing. Joseph went in there as a slave. Joseph's father goes in there uh, af having used up all a majority of his wealth trying to survive this famine that had hit the land. And so he goes in there with relatively nothing. So they went in there with nothing. They begin to grow as a nation within Egypt, and they leave with all the wealth of Egypt. Last week we looked at those um, five or six reasons for the plagues, and one of the reasons was to make the Israelites so offensive to the Egyptians that there's no way that they can return. I mean, they have taken everything from the Egyptians. There's, the Egyptians, by the time they get ready to go, by the time God gets done doing his works in Egypt, they are so sick of the Jews that they would they just, you just take it and go, please, just go away. Um, and this was the catalyst to lead the Jews to plundering the Egyptians um, without ever, you know, essentially firing a shot. They, don't have, they just go up to the neighbor and is like, hey, man, what you got in the safe? He's like, here, man, just take it. Just please go away. Your God is very hard on us. So like with the plagues, um, the plundering of Egypt serves some purposes. It, it serves the purpose, very similar to the plagues, to burn a bridge um, so that the 
Egyptians would feel jilted and not want that bunch of, of they, I mean, they would see them, they would perceive them as like thieving rascals. They, they burn this bridge so bad that there's no way they're coming back. There's no way the Egyptians allow these people back. Number two is that so that the Jews would know in their hearts, there is no way those people want us back. We just took everything they had. Uh, number three was to greatly weaken the Egyptian economy so that they don't have the finances to build up another military or to, you know, they got to really focus on just getting it together because they've lost all of their spring crops. They've lost a majority of their livestock and all of their spring crop. I mean, they are going to starve out this night. It's going to be a tough couple of years as they reestablish their farming practices, reestablish their their uh, you know cattle and livestock and things like that. It's going to be tough. So they they really God weakens their economy so that Egypt can't come after them uh, immediately. They're not that far away. If you look at it on a map, I, I tried to figure it out the other day. I can't even remember, but but say less than 300 miles, more like between 150 and 300 miles is where Israel is going to end up being. Well, if you're the most powerful country in the world and you have chariots and you have the ability to tote water, you could go over there and take everything and just enslave them again. But they're going to spend the next century trying to make up for, I mean, they're starting at zero again. The only thing they basically have left is their homes. And the last thing was to provide restitution for the years that Egyptians had taken advantage of an enslaved people. The Bible strongly warns against taking advantage of the poor and the downtrodden. Uh, I got a couple verses for you. One, Leviticus 19.13. These are warnings to them that they wouldn't do the same thing. In fact, God's warning them and reminding them, look, this is what the Egyptians did to you. Don't you dare do this to other people. 19.13, you shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Uh, It's kind of an interesting thing there. And I've seen it happen on jobs. I guarantee Zach's seen it on construction jobs. You'll finish a job for someone. You've worked hard on it for two months. You get all done, and they'll be like, well, you know, I'm going to need like 15 days to get my money together. I mean, you got all your money out there that you've spent buying all the product, all the material. You've put all your effort in. You've paid all your labor. And then the guy that owes you for, the, for all that, he's like, well, you're going to have to give me what I get like 15, 30 days to pay this back, right? Or one a couple months, you know. And after a while, you're like, man, you're keeping food out of my kid's mouth, you know. And God strictly warns against that. And they should be Aware of that. You could use that on them next time, Zach. Somebody does you that way. Another one, uh, Deuteronomy 24, 15. Uh, Let's see. Each day, uh, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is within your land, within your gate. So it doesn't matter if that guy is your brother, your nephew, or an African man, or a Chinese man, or a Filipino man. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he's a hired man, a Mexican man, and he's an illegal whatever. If you hired the man, you pay the man. Each day you shall give him his wages, and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set in his and set his heart on it. He needs it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. That's an interesting verse. We need to think about that when we owe someone money. If you owe somebody money, pay them. Don't make them beg for it. Don't make them work more for it. Don't hold it over their head for days and days and days. Well, when you get this done, I'll pay you. When you get this done, I'll pay you. Uh, Psalm 37, 21 is another one. Proverbs 3, 27, 28. But truly, though they owed the Israelites for 400 years of service, I think the biggest thing that was going on here was because God said he was going to plunder the nation. And what God says he will do, he will do. 
He said, whether they had taken from the Israelites wrongly or not, God knows the heart of men and he knows what the, the Egyptians are. But, but uh, you know, if you got the opportunity to take advantage of someone, you likely will. It's what we are as people. We're just nasty. Um, I saw a, a, a deal here about these. They did a study uh, back in the 60s and they had a certain number of people, these guys, they signed up for it and they got paid like nothing, like $20 for a couple weeks. And they took half the guys and made them prison guards, and they took half the guard guys and made them prisoners. Nobody had done anything wrong. This was just a college, you know, thing, trying to figure out how people would react. Within, like, three days, the guards were physically abusing, the guys that were chosen as guards were physically abusing these guys that were their friends. They had gotten the guard mindset, and the prisoners, within three days, had such emotional problems. Within like a week, they had to stop the study because the, the guys that were the prisoners had such emotional problems from being mentally and physically abused by these guys that were their friends and the guards. They like end up with Stockholm Syndrome after three days. Neither one of them had done anything wrong beforehand. Neither one deserving of prison or anything else. The, the heart of man, the natural heart of man is so wicked, you think that you're not that way. I promise you, if the situation gets into that, you could fall into the very same thing. The only thing, the only difference between a good man and a bad man is the good man has God. That's it. If you have Christ and the motivation to sin not, that's the only thing that keeps you from doing the same thing to being abusive to other people, taking advantage of, and so on. So these Egyptians are not to be judged necessarily. They did exactly what you would do. You got a guy that's going to work cheap to free, you're going to work him. You're going to take all you can from him, and when it comes to the end, you're going to say, get out of here. And that's exactly what they did. So the biggest reason that God said that he, he knew that the Egyptians would do this because he knows who men are and what they are. But the biggest reason he did it is because he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you into Egypt. I'm going to grow you as a nation. They're in a little protected thing. Now, there's a lot more going on there. But he takes the Jews into Egypt, and he's protecting them for them to develop into a nation, a nation of people that he's going to use. So he allows the power of Egypt to protect his people, to grow them into the nation, to toughen them up, to prepare them to go into Canaan and clear Canaan out of the different Eames that are there, the Nephilim and the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the, all that bunch. He's going he's gonna to prepare them beforehand to go there, but they need to be in a protective spot. So he uses Egypt to protect them, but at the same time, Egypt takes advantage of them. Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. He's talking to the Jews after they get out, but it's still relevant here. God is not unaware of the trials and the struggles and the tests that his people go through. And so he's keeping an eye on those people. He's watching. He's like, uh, bad call, Egyptian. You're going to pay for that one. Like, Ooh, bad call, Egyptian. You're going to pay for that one. You're going to pay for that one, too. You know, I saw that. You're going to pay for that one. He knows. He's not unaware. He's got it all marked down. There's a number of books in heaven, one being the book of life, one being the book of not life. But there's other books as well where it says that the deeds of men are marked down. They exist. He's not unaware of what's going on. So uh, Exodus 3, 20 and 22, let's look at that one for just a second as we make our way to the, to the big stuff. 3, verse 20, talking about, so he's kind of letting Moses know, he's letting the word out there, I'm about to make a major movement here. And when I get done with the Egyptians, you guys are going to come out of here wealthy, though you brought nothing to this nation but yourself. 
when I remove you from this nation, you're going to come out very wealthy, 320. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptian. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. Every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. This isn't, this isn't Zach, big muscly Zach, going to little scrawny neighbor house at gunpoint and taking her stuff. This is little Whitney. This is little Abby going over there. Little person going over there and say, I'm going to need all your stuff. And they're like, okay, here. I mean, it's not a threat. It's not under threat that they go and ransack Egypt. It's because God prepares the Egyptians' hearts by the turmoil that he puts on them beforehand. Look at uh, Egypt, Exodus 12, 34 and 36. Exodus 12. Uh, the Egyptians urged the people in verse 33, please go already, uh, that they may send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. If this keeps going, w there's no way we're making out of here. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses and had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. They, they plundered the Egyptians um, as bad as any other time in history besides maybe World War II and what, and what uh, Germany did to Europe where they took every piece of gold, every piece of art, everything from everyone. They said, I mean, they took everything they had. So maybe not for all of the time that the Jews were in Egypt, but for the last measurable part of the 400 years they were there, the Egyptians had specifically taken advantage of God's people. And they had forgotten that their nation's blessings originated with Joseph, that he was the one that caused all these blessings to come. And we already talked about that last week, so we won't dwell on that too much. But as the work of the mediator Joseph working there, going before God, God speaking to him, him telling him, this is what's going to happen. We need to get some grain ready. We need to get some you know, livestock ready. We need to have some water ready. They had made, uh, he had made plans for economic and military gains. I don't know if you know this, but Joseph was actually a, a true socialist, if not a communist. He, he ends up purchasing all the people from the surrounding lands, all their land, and then he gets a percentage of all their production. I mean, he made Egypt a very powerful socialist country and uh, we look down on socialism, and, and rightly so, I believe, and communism, and rightly so. But he basically made this into the, the most gigantic dictatorship, communist dictatorship ever. He, they literally, the, the, the pharaoh of Egypt literally owned all of the people, all the land, and all of their production. Not just Egypt, but all the surrounding lands as well. If you go back and read that story of Joseph, each time the people came and the drought got worse or the famine got worse, he'd be like, all right, you're going to have to give me all your livestock now. Okay. Oh, you're going to have to give me all your grain now. Okay. You're going to have to give me all your grain production now. Okay. And they keep doing that. You're going to have to give me title deed to your land now. Okay. And they do that. So he was a great um, benefit to Egypt. But over time, Egypt lost that, that picture. He made military gains there and everything else. So um, these 
plans that Joseph made, they came directly from the mind of God. God put them in Joseph's mind. Joseph was obedient. He implemented those things like he should. And the nation overall was blessed. I don't think it would be a blessing to not own anything personally. But when it comes to your life and starvation, you would be quite blessed to know. Then, and the Jews lived in that land, and they felt blessed because they asked to go back, knowing that there was uh, fruit and vegetable production and things like that that they didn't have in the desert. So anyway, so rather than recognizing the good and usefulness of the people, they sought instead to enslave them because they saw how they were outgrowing. It was kind of like Jacob and um, Laban, where his sheep were outgrowing Laban's sheep. You know, they were just doubling you know, exponentially more quickly than the Egyptians were. They were more prolific. And so uh, the Egyptians had a kind of a twofold purpose there. One was to enslave them, to use them, but the other was to try to break their reliance on God and make them um, loyal to the king. And that was, um, anyway, so that's a bad call. The Lord is seeing that, and he's like, okay, it's time to remove my people. Their spirit has become the spirit of a slave, and I can't use that for them to uh, take out the Canaanites. So so anyway, let's see where I'm at. So God used their, their he used his miracles, his miracle power. I saw that in, in Exodus 3 there. I thought it was really interesting. It said, uh, it says, uh, uh, verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. So God had to put a certain amount of influence on Egypt so that they would recognize that the things that he were, was doing was things that no other God could do. He needed to do that for his own people, but he also did it for the mixed multitude. He was going to put pressure on them uh, so that they would see that there is a one true God and that he can work wonders that other ones can't. We would not, I would not consider lice a wonder. I would consider it a misery or the locust, or any other of those plagues. But he did that to get the attention of both his people and the Egyptians and the mixed multitude that would come out. So enter the plagues. He's going to completely strip everything of value from the nation of Egypt because of what they owed the people. Because the reason that nation was what it was was because they had made that nation on the backs of the Israelites. So the plagues. So what the bloody waters, if you go from Exodus 7 through Exodus 11, we don't have to read all those. You can go read those, you should, um, in preparation for Passover this coming week. But the plagues, of what the bloody waters didn't harm, the frogs covered. Then when the frogs begin to die, it brings such a mess and a stench. And then we have lice. And it says, uh, we, had a, we had a piece of carpet one time in a, in a, in a rental house we worked on. And the, and the fleas were so bad, when we first walked through there, we thought it was dust, like the floor was dusty. Like you could walk, and they were just like fogging around your feet. The lice were like that. This is the dust turned to lice. So you imagine the layer of dust on the parking lot. Now it's all lice, and it's everywhere. It's in your nose. You know how you go out there in the sweaty places and those uh, gnats, and you walk in, you snort one up your nose? There's so many lice that they're, you can't stop but breathing them. They're in your bedding. They're in your clothing. They're everywhere. They're just eating you alive. What the, what the lice didn't wear out. Um, and, and I think that in this time, what Egypt saw, so about day three of lice, aren't you like thinking there might be a better place to live? Egypt starts losing its greatest asset, its people. It's one reason I believe that the Pharaoh really starts clamping down on him. He's starting to lose people. 
If your nation is so terrible that your water is blood, it's covered with frogs. I mean, it's covered with frogs. If you read the description of the frogs, you like can't walk for stepping on a frog. It's covered. Double layer thickness on everything of frogs. It sounds like a weird thing, but each one of these, as you know, I hope you know, is a play on against the gods that the, the, the Egyptians worshipped. So each one of these things was one of their gods, and God's mocking their gods. You want frogs? You got the frog god? How about so many frogs you can't walk without stepping on one? And then when the frogs die, think of the mess and the stench and the bloody water and the bloody, they couldn't even dig beside the Nile you know, like you would in a spring, maybe you know this. Jungle warfare and survival, just so you know. You got a river, the river's bad, you dig a hole beside the river, it filters through the sandy thing, and then you can drink that water. It's a little murky, but it's not going to give you the beaver fever either. So you can drink that water, it's safer than your river water, just so you know. Well, they could dig beside the Nile, and it was bloody too. Any water stored in their house, it was bloody. It was brutal. Think of the stench. It's interesting, too. Moses is staring at Pharaoh. Pharaoh's on his boat. I'm giving you too much detail. Pharaoh's on his boat, and he's out there, and he's like, you're messing around, Pharaoh. Let my people go. And he goes, no. And he touches the water, and it's blood. And Pharaoh was out there to bathe. It's interesting how God's doing these things. So the people start leaving or trying to leave. Another thing I'll tell you is this, Venezuela, as communism has crept in there and whatever, and the people started leaving, the first thing the guy does, um, Maduro, the first thing he does is he tries to clamp down the border to keep the people from escaping. That's what countries do. That's what communist countries do. That's what dictatorships do. So they begin to lose their people, then the flies. I mean, think about it. You got the rotting blood, you got the rotting frogs, you got all the lice, there's plenty of stuff for flies to eat. Now you've got a thickness of flies that's so thick, um, you know, you can't breathe for sucking in a fly. Uh, then the livestock begins to die off. And the people are thinking, well, at least we still got bread, at least we still got vegetables. But it says, then they're covered with painful boils. Um, my mom's got uh, uh, shingles right now, and she says she can't hardly move. She's taking a pain thing to, to help her sleep at night, you know. Imagine that on your whole body. Everyone. Well, not everyone. We'll see in just a second. It's not everyone. And then the hail. And then the hail kills all of the standing grain, all the stuff that's about ready to be processed. And anything that's left, then comes the locust, and the locust eats. And, they, and after that, there's a pervasive darkness. It's a deep darkness like in a cave, if you've ever been in a cave, and they turn off the lights, or you're in a, you know, there is no light whatsoever. But somehow, if you look, the Jews could see, just not the Egyptians. And the last was the death of the firstborn. So if you're looking, if you're living there, aren't you like packing up your stuff and ready to go? When you see these wonders of God, you don't really think of them as that wonderful. We think of a wonder as like wonderful. But these are wonders, but they're not wonderful. These are terrible. The plundering of the gold and silver was nothing compared to the loss of every single, I mean, every single thing that they got is rotten, is putrid, is covered with flies, is taken away. There's nothing to eat. There's no meat there's no grain what do you eat what's left i mean if you got locusts they eat the grass too they eat it down to the dirt uh they you can't worship you know they were big on worshiping the nile you can't worship the nile anymore because it's just death it just brings death uh i mean it's just like no wonder the mixed multitude left as quickly as they could they didn't even ask the neighbor they're just like can we come with you there's a verse or two we got to see there that's exodus 8 verse 23 is a good one 
And it kind of gives you the idea that uh, God is working here to gain the attention of his people. I will set up, and in that day, so the third plague lies, so from flies on, so it looks like the Jews had to endure some of these things as well, but from plague flies on, the fourth plague, and in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of the Pharaoh and so on. The land was corrupted because of the flies. Then look at uh, 9, 20, and 21. So, so Moses goes before the Pharaoh and he says, the next one is hail. And he actually gives Pharaoh an out and Pharaoh is such an arrogant fool that he won't bite. And he says, hail's going to come, and it's going to destroy everything. If you've never seen hail before, which they likely haven't, um, then you don't know what he's talking about. But it's really interesting. Therefore, sin now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field. Uh, let me see here. I'm going to start at 17. As yet you exalt yourself against my people and that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down such as never been in Egypt since its founding until now. You know, they've never seen it before. Therefore, sin now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field. For the hail shall come down on every man, every animal which is found in the field. It's not, if it's not brought home, they shall die. He gives them an out. Hey, go get your stuff and put it inside. It's fixing to get, it's fixing to get bad around here. It's going to kill everything. Verse 20, he who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to his houses. So now the mixed multitude is hearing because of the wonders of God. And they're like, man, he said, hail. And I know the river of blood and the flies and the other jazz was bad. I'm getting my stuff to the house. I'm going to put it inside, including my family. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. If you don't believe God in the first uh, six uh, plagues, you're not going to believe him in the last three or four. I, I just can't. It, it's, it's in evangelism and talking to people about the gospel, it's the same thing here. You can point them to God. You can point them to creation. You can say, a tree didn't just make itself. You can explain how the tree works. You can explain how the puppy dog works and how it's not by, it wasn't, didn't change from a, you know, an amoeba to a fish to a whale to a dog. And still, they will say there is no God. He just said, I'm going to do these wonders in your midst. And still those people say there is no God. These gods of Egypt are more powerful than this God. And he goes, I'm we're talking hail. Uh, you guys, how many remember the hail storm of, was it 91? Anybody remember that? We got pictures of our house over there in the, in the, the downtown Crescent area. And uh, it, it had aluminum siding. And it has these strips where it came. It was like softball-sized hail. And it stripped every leaf off of every tree, stripped all the sides, punched holes in the roof. The roof of our barn still has all the dimples all over it. I mean, this was worse. They talk about hail in the Bible the size of millstones. So a small millstone is about this big around, maybe about that thick. So think basketball to medicine ball size hail coming down. And you're out walking around in it. Doink. And you're done. On livestock or any other thing. It's... We're talking about some serious hail. I don't know how their houses stood up to it. I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was very interesting. So the mixed multitude are watching the miracles of God. 
and they see all his wonders just like he said they would. And so anyone who was wise saw that there's a God who is almighty and that he's not in the direction of men, but he does whatever he chooses. Man is at his mercy. We got to remember that. We're at the mercy of God. I don't think we think about that a lot of times when we do different things. I don't think we, we recognize that we're at God's mercy. The fact that you're here today, that you're breathing and alive, can see out of your eyes and hear in your ear holes and smell in your nose and taste with your tongue, and you have the ability to walk from your car to here or limp or whatever, however you got in here, that you're at the mercy of God that you made it inside this building right now to hear his word. Everything that we do, we're at his mercy. It's a picture that anyone in Exodus could have seen, anyone in Egypt could have seen, including um, the people of today that would read God's word. They could see that he's a God most powerful, that he can do that stuff. He's not a respecter of persons, the Bible says. And he, but also, I want you to know that God does not joyfully destroy men. You know, he tells us he's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He doesn't want to see men destroyed, but he will do whatever it takes to gain men's attention so that they could be brought to the saving knowledge of the gospel. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. So by the time of the Exodus, the saying of that region, this is marked down, somebody's found this years ago on some archive, Egypt was described as a silo emptied of its grain, a fisherman's net devoid of fish. There was nothing left. It got what it deserved. Egypt got what it deserved in this life. And it's very sad, but they still had a measure of hope. They could have repented at any time. And God left, even in this hail I saw, he who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. I believe that even with the Passover and the blood on the doors, if you were neighbor Egyptian guy and you went to Jewish guy and you said, what you doing with the blood on the door? that even they had a chance to escape the wrath of the, of the death of the firstborn. But they had to be obedient. They had to kill the lamb the right way. They had to put the blood on the doorpost, and they had to be inside. And if they did that, then their firstborn would live. It's very interesting how God works there, but he is, always leaves a way of escape for those that would hear his voice. So e Egypt got what they deserved. They could have repented. Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8 points out that God is a God of wrath, but he's a God of mercy. You should write that one down and study on that. That's solid. I got to put it on our uh, devotion for this week if you want to read it. But um, he provides a means of escape for those that will accept him and seek his face. So after this, they came out of the land and they were rescued. Sometimes we get to see the wicked get their just desserts. Usually we don't. Um, but that's not really the point. The plundering of the people is not the point. The point is, is the restitution. The Jews, when they were leaving, were, were, were excited, I'm sure. It says they gathered up their bowls, their bread, and their kneading bowls. This was unleavened bread. They tied it on the thing. They were packed up, ready to go. And when they were given the signal, they left. They got the stuff from the neighbors, and they got to marching. Because they knew that uh, Egypt would be coming after them. They were very excited. Like I said, they got this big windfall. They're like, I cannot, I've never had a gold nothing in my whole life, and now I got, a, I got so much I can't carry it. And uh, so they were excited. They weren't excited um, because of the death of all these people. In fact, the Jews today, when they celebrate Passover, they have the, they have the one goblet, the second cup, 
and they actually dip their finger in and they drip it on a napkin beside their cup. And it's supposed to represent the tears that were shed over the, the different plagues that happened during that time. They actually were concerned. They had care for those that died. They knew these people. I mean, you can have a neighbor that you don't like, but you still hate to see his, you know, his kid get hit by, you know, or get wrecked on a four-wheeler and get killed or something. So they knew these people. And so they actually had sorrow for the Egyptians that had died, dip and drip, for the blood, dip and drip, for the frogs, dip and drip, for the lice, drip and drip. Each one representing the tears that were shed for the people that lost their lives in these things. But at the, on the other side, there's a, a, a certain amount of excitement of escaping from slavery. They knew the Egyptians would want payback, whether deserved or not. And in thinking about all this, how can we relate this to what we exist in today? Why would we talk about all these things? If I can help you think about this, I would tell you this. Though we're not Jews, and we haven't been terribly wronged in the United States of America, as I can see today, although I see that uh, Burkina Faso or whatever, and how those poor people are just tormented by the Muslim horde and all that. But in general, we live as the wealthiest people in the world right now. The poorest people in the United States have way more wealth-wise. The homeless in the United States have more than the average person has in Peru. I've been there a number of times. And you see how they live, and you're just like, $3 a day is what they're living on. You know, one meal a day, often, and it's a piece of bread about the size of a baseball. And, and when you see that, you're like, okay, though I'm not really killing it, I got it, a lot of wealth. So in that, we have trouble seeing that our restitution is in the future. But what we got to see is that this world is not our home uh, and that this place, this world is a place of taking. It's not a place of giving. So most of us, like I said, here at Plant Grower are, are quite wealthy, especially compared to the rest of the world, the world international, I would say. There's people that are wealthier and less wealthy here in this fellowship, I'm sure. But, uh, but you need to see any income that you do have is a blessing from God. He provides that for your, for your care. But the wealthiest of men on earth have nothing in comparison to the inheritance equal to that of Christ that we're allowed as believers. So we won't see all of that until after death, but just know that. The Israelites, this, was the, this is the thing I want you to catch. The Israelites, though they weren't super wealthy as they were within the confines of Egypt, they had a way of life that they had become comfortable with. And that's very true of many Christians. We have a way that we're very comfortable with. We don't have to be the wealthiest guy, the poorest guys, and we've got our Netflix and some popcorn, we'll be okay. You know, we, we're not super flush. We're not all driving Rolls Royces around. But at the same time, we don't want for anything. And so one thing that God has to do is he had to break their desire to stay in Egypt. Though they were slaves in Egypt, they knew what that life was. So for me to say, you're a slave here, but I can take you to a place that's better, but first you've got to go through the desert, there's just too many unknowns, and he had to break that fear of the unknown in them. He had to show them through his wonders and his powers that he has the ability to take them from slavery and take them into a promised land that's better. But he can't take them there until they're completely sick of the place they're at and the people around them are sick of them being there. And I believe that we're seeing the same thing now in our country as we're starting to see the people around us get absolutely sick of us. That's why these negative things happen towards the church or towards Christians in politics and, and in the secular world as well. That's why. God's breaking us. We want to be liked. God's breaking us of the desire to be liked by men. 
and to desire the things of this world so that he can take us to the promised land. He's going to work his wonders through us just like he did with them. But he's going to make the world is going to be absolutely sick of you by the time you die. I, it seems to be coming quite quickly now. And on the other side, he's going to make you sick of the world. One reason I believe that people get sick before they die is because if they didn't, they'd cling to life forever. That's one reason. It's not every reason. Part of it's the fallenness of the world and just sickness happens. But one of the reasons is, is so that we don't hold on to this world. There's got to be something better. But if I have everything I want in this world and every day is better than the day before, well, then what do I want heaven for? God's got to break that in us somehow. It's very difficult. I wanted to show you this picture. Let's, can we see our, uh, our camel picture there? I got two pictures for you. Go to Matthew 19, 20, 19 16. Matthew 19, 16. We'll see our picture there. There's picture one. We've got another one. That's the needle gate, supposedly. Notice the shape of it. See how it's tall and skinny, and then the top is big and round? Go to, do we got one more picture? Oh, we didn't put the other one on there of the camel. So the other one was just a picture of a big gate with a little tiny door in it. You see it a lot in Peru. Um, they'll have big gates on their entrances to their homes where they can drive a car in, and in it they'll have a little man door, like no bigger than this. Like we have to put butter on the sides of Zach to get him in there. I'm telling you, it's a small door. And, uh, but anyway, so they, they're small people. So what's that? <laughs> anyway, it's tough. It's tough. So, so look at the shape of this. And now let's read the scripture right here. Matthew 19. Start at 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but the one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to them, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. You honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what, still, what do I lack still? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Surely I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible. With God all things are possible. Here's what's going on. With the disciples in that culture, you are considered blessed by God if you had wealth. God must really love you. He blessed you. You have wealth. And so they were surprised when Jesus says it's very difficult for a rich man to enter heaven. Why? Because he has his wealth here. He likes his wealth. He likes having carpet on the floor. He likes having air conditioner, whatever they had, big guy fanning them with a palm leaf or whatever. He can afford to pay the guy. He likes having, you know, fast food and, and food ready when he comes. He likes having all the wine he can drink and all the food he can stand. He likes those things. So it's very difficult for him to see his need for Christ. And I've told you a hundred times, you know, what do we need Christ for if we got Walmart over there? If I can go purchase everything I need to satisfy my wants, well, then what do I need Christ for? But when I go to other countries and I see a man be very sick and come to the church and ask for prayer, then I see a different kind of faith than we have here. Because when we get very sick, we go to the doctor. 
And when all else fails, after the doctor says he can't fix it, and after there's no more medicine and there's no more pain relief, then we rely on God. But we don't go to God first. We go to God last. So what it's saying here, how can a rich man get it? It's easier for the camel to go through this gate. Well, what does the camel got to do? Think about the shape of a camel. I wish we had a camel picture on there, but just think how he is. Got a big hump on his back, long, skinny bird legs. But they pack all this stuff on the camel, right? They got their blanket on there and their saddle and their saddle bags and all the stuff that they're traveling with. How does the camel get through the gate? You got to strip the wealth off the camel to get him through the hole. You can't take all the wealth on the camel and get him through the hole. You got to take the wealth off. And I believe that's the picture here. Some say there's some other thoughts on that, but I believe that's the picture here. The camel can make it through the hole. He's not saying it's impossible for the camel to get through the hole. He's saying the camel can't go through the hole with all his stuff on. The rich man's not going to make it into the king of the heaven, kingdom of heaven, trying to hold on to all his stuff. He's going to have to hold on to it loosely. He can't take it there with him. It's difficult for us to not hold on so tightly to the stuff that we have. We need to see it. Well, we just need to see it in a different way. Because God's going to do whatever he has to do to bring his people into his kingdom. He's going to bring them into reconciliation with himself, and there's going to be a funny-shaped door that you're going to have to pass through. And on this side is going to be a big pile of all your stuff, and the only way you're getting through the door is to bring only yourself. There's nothing you can take with you eternally. So for the believer, this is tragic, and it's hard for us to hear. But like Dave's been preaching on Job and, and doing a great job on Sunday nights, I hope you come. But one thing God did with Job was he stripped him of his wealth, or he allowed him to be stripped of his wealth. And when Job is sitting there without his wealth, he says, naked I came into the world, naked I shall return. Uh, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job recognized that the stuff that he had didn't make him a man of God. It didn't make him anything. It's just stuff. There's nothing in this world worth holding on to that would keep you separated from God in eternity. There's nothing. Well, what about my children? Oh, I like my kids. I love my kids. I would pray that they would be saved. But my salvation doesn't make my kids' salvation, and their salvation doesn't make mine. Each one of us has to stand individually before the Most High God and give an account for ourselves. So I will have to give an account for my children if they're not saved. I'll have to give an account for my wife, whether or not I washed her daily in the Word. But the reality is I have to stand there alone, naked, and be judged. So anything that what it could possibly lose here will be restored to you as a believer in eternity. So if we see, let's look at this escape from Egypt one different way. Let's see it as an escape from slavery and the traveling in the wilderness of sin. That's what it's called. As a picture of a man's life who is born dead in his trespasses and sin or born a slave. And one day a messenger comes to him. A person comes to him. Moses comes to you in the form of Jed or Dave or Sarah and gives you the gospel. He tells you that I'm gonna, I have a means of escape, but you got to follow me to the Father. I can tell you how you're going to get out of here, and when you get out of here, you're going to be blessed. You're going, to, you're going to plunder the world on your way out of the world, out of this trespasses and sin. You're going to plunder them. And here's, here's the gift is the gospel. And you're going to need this gospel, and you're going to need God's word as well 
to be able to manage your way through the wilderness of sin. The Father gave us all that we need to navigate in that wilderness of sin, which is the world. And we're going to wander around there for a time until it's our day to go into the promised land. That comes at death. The wealth of the world has a purpose, but its primary purpose is to keep us alive in the wilderness of sin and to do God's will. So our, our wealth does have a purpose. I mean, we've got to buy groceries, we've got to wear clothes, we've got to have shoes and need our hair cut and whatever. I know my hair is looking long and shaggy. I'll work on that. But we, we do need money for that. But a large, a large part of the wealth that God gives is for us to be able to bless others, to care for the widow and the orphan in their distress. Like Paul taking from one poor people and giving it to another for the expansion of the gospel in those nations. So we have wealth for those things. But we have to recognize that it all comes from God as a blessing. We plunder the nation so that we have wealth, so that we can use it to continue the kingdom of God. Other than that, wealth is a very difficult test for most believers because we really do quite easily get trapped in that, that world mindset of, of more and more and better and better, faster and faster, as much as I can. It's just how we are. It's we're people. So we've got to remember that this world is not our home. He said to the, to the Jews that I'm going to give you houses that you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, orchards you didn't plant, crops that you didn't plant. He's going to drive the wild beasts out of the land so they don't even have to fear the wild beasts. And that's how it's been for most of us. A large portion of what we have, even your faith, was given because someone else did the hard work before you, and now you have it. And so now, what do you do with it? It's a test to you to see if you recognize your need from God, for God above all else or if it's just one more thing that we add to the, to the pot. And if I need to, you know, if I get in a pinch, you know, I'll, I'll call God. Other than that, I, I pretty much got it. I got it handled. I can buy a doctor, I can rent a car, I can go to Walmart for groceries, and I'm good. So we gotta, we got to measure that. Many people were lost in the wilderness along the way. They had the same wealth, they had the same father, they had the same messenger, but they were lost along the way. Only the second generation was saved. So how do I make sure that I'm the second generation? To the second generation, God... God uh, provides a very special place of residence and that's us the gospel's been handed down over these centuries to us philippians 320 says our citizenship is in heaven so what we got to be do what we need to do is we need to be careful that we don't attach ourselves to the very best part of the wilderness on earth and we need to recognize instead that the best part of the wilderness here is the worst part of heaven in eternity if we can get our focus reoriented to that We'll handle our money differently, we'll handle our wealth differently, and we'll recognize that the restitution is yet to come. This world is not our home. People are going to be hard on us here. But we need to be avid witnesses for the gospel, recognizing that our, our treasure comes in the future. Okay? Let's pray together this morning, this, this week. Maybe you could take the time to read through the, the uh, plagues there. Exodus 7 through 11 there and just kind of see what's going on there. This coming Saturday is Passover. I'm sorry if you haven't signed up, but that, that gate is closed. The window is closed. It would be harder for a camel to get in that gate than for you to get in there, no matter how much butter you got on you. You ain't getting in. But, uh, but this following week, we'll be, we'll be talking about that this coming Sunday, and we'll be talking about Passover and that. And, and uh, just maybe even go, there's a thing called Hebrew for Believers. If you want to go on there and look up some stuff about Passover, it's really good, Christian man. 
and he's got just click on feasts and then go on uh, Passover there or, or Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the same one in the same feast. Um, and click on that, give you something to work on this week while you're preparing your heart for this coming weekend, all right? You could celebrate Passover in your home. Unleavened bread, lamb, and uh, wine or grape juice, whichever way you go. Um, that's all you need to celebrate the Passover. And bitter herbs, sorry. All right, let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. I pray that the word that we had today was the word that you, you desired for us, Lord. I pray that it wasn't the man speaking, but it was you speaking through me. I thank you for these that have come. They could have been somewhere else, but they chose to be here. I pray that the word was a blessing to them. I pray that they don't just hold on to it, but, but they be a living sea and pour it out on everyone that they come in contact with, that they know that there is a Messiah and that they recognize that they're a messenger for him. Lord, I pray for those in our community and the outlying parts there of Cumberland County and, and for our state, our nation, is that we would be, be more vocal with the gospel. Lord, there's a lot of the mixed multitude out there that's just, they're like the ones that didn't bring their animals in from the hail. They know there's a God, but they say no God because they're just rebellious. Have mercy on us as a country, Lord. Have mercy on us as a people. Have mercy on us as believers for not being as diligent as we should have been in preaching your word. Thank you, Lord, for these that have come again. Father, we thank you for the food and the hands that prepared it. Uh, we pray for those, those families that are the lonely ones and the hurting ones. And the ones in pain, Lord, we, we lift those up this morning. Pray specifically for Vince this morning. Lord, that you can find a solution there. We can see healing there, and we'll give you the glory for that. We pray for Ray this morning for his cancer in his ear and uh, for Karen's brother as well. Sorry, I forgot your name. Um, uh, for the different little surgeries and things he needs done, Lord. Pray for him, Lord. I pray for uh, reduction in pain. I pray for, for rest, being able to rest well. Lord, have mercy on us. We're but made of dirt. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. In the, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you got something you want to pray about this morning, I'll wait and pray with you. I'd love to talk to you. Come up and say hey. And otherwise, stay and eat with us, okay? God bless you all.